chapter 4. Um, just a note on the College of Christian Leadership. Uh, if you are at all interested, and several have already expressed uh, real interest and we're excited about that, make sure you come to that informational meeting. And there's also, and I just want to throw this out there, there is also a track that we are developing and uh, we already have one person plugged in that's going to be a part of that. You've heard me talk for the last several years. One of the challenges of church planting over the next 10 years is going to be to find qualified leaders, um, pastors, youth pastors, uh, worship leaders. And uh, we have been working on a way that we might um, track some people through that, that ministry development. And um, we are still in the process of putting that together. We are going to make available um, housing uh, for free for students. If you know a young man or a young woman who feels called into ministry and they want to pursue that, we um, will provide housing for them during the term of their study, uh, pay for their schooling, and also for their ultimately their credentialing. And uh, again, we're in the early stages of putting that together, but we are looking for interested uh, young people that might be uh, wanting to do that. We already have one young man uh, that is going to be a part of that program. And uh, so if you have any interest, just let me know and we'll take it from there. But if you know of someone, you have a son or daughter, grandson or granddaughter that feels like God is calling them into ministry, please let us know and we would love uh, to help connect them. First Thessalonians chapter four. Don't forget Wednesday, as Paula mentioned, Bible study resumes. Looking forward to that. And here's what Paul writes, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. But we urge you brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. Everybody's thinking about people that need that scripture right now. <laughs> Told you this be a little bit better than the uh, harsh message last week. And, uh, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Holy Spirit, um, in these few moments that we will share together in your word today, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. We stand confident today that every word of Scripture is God-breathed, and it is all profitable to us for learning, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And we want to be instructed today in righteousness. So I pray, Lord, that you would uh, speak to our hearts this morning in these few moments. Pray that you would captivate the heart and mind of everyone in this room. I ask God for your anointing to rest upon my life, not because I am deserving, because I am not because I need that anointing to rightly divide, to rightly communicate the word of truth. So help me today, give us ears to hear, not just what I am saying, but what the Holy Spirit is saying to us 
through the preaching of his word. And I pray, God, that um, we would be changed. We wouldn't just tuck the outline in our Bible and have another outline, but we would be changed by your word today. And we would live more godly lives so that those on the outside watching will be drawn to Christ. That's our heart's desire. So speak to us today, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why don't you move across the aisle and shake a few hands and welcome one another to Glad Tidings this morning. And you may be seated this morning. There were, um, there were two things that marked the first century church. Two things that set them apart from everyone else. One of those we talked about last week, and that was the purity of their lives. The believer in the first century that had come to Christ did not live the godly, sensual, impure life that the pagans around them were living. But the second thing that set them apart was their practice of loving one another. As the second century Christianity began to unfold, it was now a century old or at least 50 or 60 years old, and the gospel began to spread across the Roman Empire, especially in some of its larger, more metropolitan cities like Rome and Carthage in North Africa. People began to watch very closely this new phenomenon, this Christianity. Christians were objects of great suspicion from their neighbors, from government officials, because they had given up lifestyles and behaviors that they had for so long practiced. And so they were kind of under the microscope of the second century leaders. Wild rumors began to circulate in some places about what the Christians actually taught and what they did in their meetings together. For example, when they heard that they ate the body of Jesus and they drank the blood of Jesus or that was what was spoken. They even accused the early Christians of being cannibals, not understanding the symbolic sense of communion. So to clear the air and defend the good name of Christianity, there was a church leader in Carthage whose name was Tertullian. Those of you who know anything about church history know that name. But he wrote a brief explanation of Christian practices, and he critiqued some of the accusations that had been made against the early Christians. In his work, he wrote at one point that these attacks against Christianity were actually attacks out of jealousy, because Christians were displaying a character of life that their pagan neighbors did not possess. Here is what Tertullian wrote. He said this, quote, it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. 
And then there was this great line, and this has become the line that people have quoted over and over. See how they love one another, they say. For they themselves are animated, that is the accusers, by mutual hatred. How they are even ready even to die for one another, the Christians, they say, for they themselves will sooner put to death. See how they love one another. Brotherly love, we're gonna talk about that. The Greek word is Philadelphia. Philo um, is love, Delphia brother. But brotherly love or Philadelphia is different from what we often preach in the pulpit, that is agape love. Agape love in the Greek is another one of the words for love, is the kind of love that we must have for everyone because we have experienced God's agape love. For God so loved, that's agape, the world, he gave his only begotten son. So God has shown this love to us that we have not deserved. That is agape love. And we are to exercise that toward everyone else regardless of their merits. Because God gave us his love despite our merits. But we are also in the New Testament to exercise a Philadelphia, a brotherly love to all of those who are part of the household of faith, the body of Christ, or the church. Outside the New Testament, if you ever read the word in the ancient Greek, the word Philadelphia, it always denoted the bonds of those that had one father. Brotherly love would be my love for Mark and my love for Larry, my other brother, my love for Amy. It was always that kind of love. It was, it was a familial love. That's what that word meant. But in the New Testament, Paul uses that word, and many of the writers do, to describe the exclusive kind of love that believers have for one another. And that's what we're being called to in this section of scripture. So the series, Blameless When He Comes, we have learned several things so far. And let's just look at those. In week number one, if we wanna be blameless when he comes, we have to be a faithful witness. Secondly, we have to walk worthy. Thirdly, we have to endure suffering. Fourthly, we have to have a steadfast faith. Last week, we learned that we must live holy, but today, we want to be found blameless when Jesus comes back. We have to walk in brotherly love. So I want to share with you four lessons uh, that we learn right here in this text about brotherly love. These are all very simple. Uh, you're not going to probably feel quite as tense as you did last week when I was talking about all of those tough subjects. But this is nevertheless really important. Number one, the, the first lesson is that brotherly love is a divine commandment. We are commanded to love one another. First Thessalonians 4, 9, Paul says, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In other words, you've already been taught. I really don't even have to remind you because you have already been taught by God. That phrase taught by God is a Greek phrase, theodidaktos, didaktos, Didache is teaching and Theo is God. You have already been taught by God. 
It's probably underscoring Paul's earlier statement in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 and 2, when he said, finally, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you have already received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So Paul is saying, I don't even really have to remind you again because you've already been taught this. You've been taught my God. That phrase also presupposes that these readers in 1 Thessalonians know about the upper room discourse of Jesus the night that he was betrayed. You remember when Jesus filled a basin with water and he took a towel and he girded himself with a towel and he began to wash the feet of the disciples. And it was in that context that Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just like I loved you. He's telling his disciples this, that you also love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. This will be what sets you apart if you have love one for another. And then in John 15, in that same discourse in the upper room, Jesus said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. These things I command you that you love one another. And so again, these people that he's writing to had been taught by God. They knew about what had happened in the upper room. And then John later, when he writes his epistles, drives this point home as well. This is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, 1 John chapter 3. And then later in that same chapter, 1 John chapter 4, John will write this, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If someone says, I love God, look at this, and he hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So Paul says to the Thessalonians, I probably don't even need to remind you of this. You've just been clobbered with this teaching. You heard it from us. You've heard it from God. You've heard it from the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. You're going to hear it later from John. But I want to remind you again that you are called to brotherly love. So how is brotherly love manifest? What does that look like? Let me just mention three things. Number one, it, it looks like putting other people first. Maybe this will be harder than last week. I don't know as I'm thinking about it. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Put others first. That's one way to manifest brotherly love. Secondly, don't judge your brother or argue over matters of conscience. I will tell you, that's not easy, and that's certainly not been easy for me, but Paul writes, Romans 14, 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And in the New Living Translation, that same verse says, accept other believers who are weak in the faith, and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. How many of you, I won't even ask, um, uh, how many of us struggle 
with not superimposing our opinions and our convictions on other people. How many, let, let's be honest, all right, at least half of us do and the other half are clueless. So that, that works really good. So we put others first. We don't judge our brother or argue over matters of conscience. That's brotherly love. And thirdly, and it kind of goes hand in glove with the other, don't make your brother stumble. Brotherly love, we're called to don't make your brother stumble. Here's what Paul writes in Romans 14. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do you not destroy the one for whom Christ died? So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And so these are things that each of us has to work through in our own lives. How am I going to manifest brotherly love? I'm not going to judge them. I'm not going to quarrel. Neither do I want to put something in their way. We're not talking about somebody that disagrees with you. We're talking about a weaker brother here. This is not that we need to go around pandering to everybody that disagrees with us, but we don't want to make a young believer stumble. That's part of brotherly love. Somebody say amen if you believe that. So what is the basis of brotherly love? It's not feelings or emotions. In other words, you're not necessarily going to feel all warm and fuzzy about each other. It's the word of God. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? In other words, you may not feel this warmth of hush and gush toward one another, but that's not the basis of brotherly love. The basis of brotherly love is the word of God. And it says we are to do it. Love is an action. It's not a feeling. It is an action. So the basis of brotherly love is not feelings or emotions. It's the word of God. Brotherly love also, you're going to love this, when necessitates forgiveness. We're going to walk in brotherly love. We have to forgive. Colossians 3.13, make allowance it says, if you go ahead and click the next two screens, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you. How many are thankful the Lord forgave you, all right? And so we are to forgive one another. So you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. We have to forgive. We're commanded to walk in brotherly love. J.D. Greer tells this story. He said, I remember a Muslim asking me when I lived in Southeast Asia, why would God need somebody to die in order to forgive our sin? He said, if you sinned against me, he told J.D. Greer, if you sinned against me and I wanted to forgive you, I wouldn't make you kill your dog before I forgave you. Why would God require some kind of sacrifice to forgive? Here's how I answered him. Choosing to forgive someone means that you are agreed to absorb the cost 
of the injustice of what they have done. Imagine Greer says, you stole my car and you wrecked it. And you don't have insurance or the money to pay for it. What are my choices? I could make you pay. I could haul you before a judge and request a court-mandated payment plan. If you were foolish enough to steal my $1.5 million Ferrari, and then he said, no, I don't really have a Ferrari, you might never pay it off, and you would always be in my debt. But then Greer said, but I have another choice. I could forgive you. What am I choosing to do if I say I forgive you? I'm choosing to absorb the cost of your wrong. I have to still pay the price for the car being fixed, but you have no debt to pay, not because there was nothing to pay, but because I paid it all. Not only that, I'm choosing to absorb the pain of your treatment to me. I'm choosing to give you friendship and acceptance, even though you deserve the opposite. This is how forgiveness always works. It comes at a cost. If you forgive someone, you bear the cost instead of insisting that the wrongdoer does. You don't have to pay me back. You don't have to say, I'm sorry, every day, the rest of your life. I choose to bear the cost. And that's what Jesus did. Say man, if you're thankful for that. He bore the cost for us when he came to the earth and lived as a man and died a criminal's death on a wooden cross. So number one, Brotherly love is not an option. You can't, you, you don't, when you become a Christian, you don't get, you know, multiple choice and pick three out of five things you want to do. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And any man who says he loves his brother, loves God and hates his brother is a liar. And so number one, it's a divine commandment. Say amen if you're glad you came today. All right, we're doing well. Number two, brotherly love must be the object of intentional growth. So verse 10, he says this, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all the Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. All right, Paul said, I don't really have to even tell you about this. There's really no need for me to write this because you've already been commanded by God and you're already doing it. I hear about you doing it in the churches of Macedonia. We don't know how many churches there were in Macedonia. We know that there was one in Berea and there was one in Philippi. That was part of that region. It's likely that Timothy and Silas had gone other places and started other churches. But Paul said, I already know that you're showing brotherly love throughout Macedonia. You're showing the people at Philippi, the people at Berea, the people here in Thessalonica, you are showing them that brotherly love. But Paul knew that sanctification, that is the, pro, the progressive activity of becoming more and more like Christ, he understood that in, in any area, total sanctification was not going to happen on this side of the cross. And so he said, I urge you to do more and more. Yes, you're loving your brother, but I'm urging you to intentionally grow in that love for your brother and sister, so how do we, okay, so we're commanded to do it, just follow with me, we're commanded to do it, but how do we abound more and more in brotherly love? How do we get better at this? 
How, how many honestly would like to get better at loving your brother or sister in the Lord? You want to get better at it. How do we do that? There's two things, and they both have to do with perspective. Number one, if we will learn to see one another as one for whom Christ died, it will be easier to love one another. If we can, and, and we know this theologically, but sometimes when we're really aggravated at someone or they hurt us or they do something really dumb, we just see them as some kind of pagan whatever word you want to put after that. We just, we're frustrated with them. And how am I ever going to love them after what they did to me? How am I ever going to love them with Christ's love after they have done what they have done? We can do that if we can see them through the lens of being someone for whom Jesus died, just like us. You see, it was in the context of matters of conscience that Paul wrote these words. Look at 1 Corinthians 8. And because, it, and he's telling them, let me give you the backdrop to this real quickly. This was about meat offered to idols. And Paul was saying, it's okay to eat meat offered to idols. But if your brother or sister in the Lord used to be an idol worshiper, and they see you eating meat offered to idols, and they start eating it again, and they get sucked back into that life of idolatry, and they end up missing out on God. You still go to heaven, but you have destroyed your brother for whom Christ died. Paul is saying you, you can sort out these matters of conscience better if you'll just see one another as someone for whom Christ died. I want you for just a moment to think of someone who has hurt you really badly. And I want you to realize, I want you to think about the fact they are someone for whom Jesus died. If you want to grow in brotherly love, start seeing others as people for whom Jesus died. Secondly, actually, let me show you this quote. C.S. Lewis said this. I love this kind of an interesting quote. I'm going to do this slow. I want you to get it. The dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship. That sounds a little odd, but he goes on. Because of the resurrection glory of Jesus, there is a glory awaiting every son and daughter of God. What we now see when we look at one another is far from that which we will see when we behold each other in glory. What Lewis is getting at is if we can see not who someone is right now, but we can see through the lens of someone for whom Christ died, we recognize that God is in the process of transforming them. Yesterday, we had, and a few of you know this, I posted on Facebook about it, but we had our 40th reunion of our high school baseball team. And um, one, of the, one of the men, we played golf yesterday morning, one of the guys, uh, he was pitcher, I was a catcher, I was a Christian, he was nowhere close. You understand what I'm talking about, all right? And, and we played ball together, and uh, you know, he said words at that point I didn't even know existed, and, and um, was, was a real tough guy, and did things that, again, I was very sheltered by. But, uh, and I knew this before yesterday, but he went off to college, and um, he came to Christ. 
accepted Christ as his savior. He's now a pastor in Kokomo and he's been pastoring for 20 some years. And um, I wish I could tell you that when I was 18, I was thinking about this text. I did try to be kind to him and I did try to shine my light. But my point is, I would have never imagined then what God was going to do in him. So if you can look at other people and not see them for the hurt that they caused today, but see them as someone for whom Christ died, that he is still at work in their lives and see the glory that he is going to make in them. Let me just ask you this way. How many want people to see you as a work still in progress? How many want, you don't want anybody to judge you for who you are in your, on your worst moment. And so we can grow in brotherly love if we'll see one another through the eyes of someone for whom Christ died. Secondly, to see one another through the lens of union, our union with our glorified elder brother. Let me explain that. We see Jesus as our advocate. He's our king. He's our priest. He's our Lord. He's our savior. But there's this messianic prophecy, a prophecy about a Messiah to come in Psalm 22. This is speaking about Jesus. And look at what it says. I will declare, this is as if Jesus were speaking, I will declare your name, he's speaking to the Father, to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. You see, we have, look at me, everybody look at me for just a moment. We've been adopted into the family of God. How many are thankful for that? Say amen. We've been adopted in the family of God. And the Bible says we are heirs with God and we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Like it or not, you are brothers and sisters with every fellow believer because we all have an elder brother who is not ashamed to call us his brother. That elder brother is Jesus. He's our advocate, he's our king, he's our Lord, he's our savior. He's also our elder brother and he is not ashamed to call us his brethren. We are to live in community because we are community, like it or not. Even if you don't like somebody here, you are part of the same family. Even if somebody hacked you off yesterday that's a Christian, you are part of the body of Christ with them and you are going to spend eternity with them. And I'll tell you what, if you don't let go of that hurt, if you make it to heaven, they're gonna be your next door neighbor. I'm just pretty sure that's the way it's gonna work. <laughs> my, my point is, if we can see people through the lens that they are someone for whom Christ died, and they are also a brother of my elder brother, which makes us brothers, then it becomes much easier to love them. G.K. Chesterton says this, I love this line, love is not blind. That is the last thing that love is. Love is bound. And the more it is bound, the less it is blind. We are bound to one another in Christ. And we may not be blind at all to one another's faults. But guess what? They're not blind to yours either. But we are bound to one another in Christ in brotherly love. Brotherly love is intentional about growth. Let me give you the last two pretty quickly. Brotherly love, number three. <laughs> this is the one you were all waiting for. Brotherly love minds its own business. Say amen if you believe that. It minds its own business. 
Here's what Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Literally, this says, actually, the J.B. Phillips translation says it this way, make it your ambition to have no ambition. Now, he's not talking about work ambition. He's talking about make it your ambition to not be ambitious to get in someone else's business. Make it your ambition to stay away from critiquing their life. Aspire, the word is philotimiomai. It means to be eager, to be earnest, to be ambitious, to lead a quiet life, to hold one's peace, not to be ambitious to jump into someone else's business or to engage in meddlesome speech. Mind your own business. G.K. Beale says this, this is a great quote too. When love takes a high profile among God's people, they assume a low profile between one another and others. They're not egotistic, not cocky, they're not critical. They take a low profile of humility. Here are some practical implications. In case you didn't know what it means to mind your own business, going to help you, all right? It's what pastors do. They help people, and I'm going to help you today. Make it your ambition to be quiet, it says. Here's how you do that. Number one, determine that you will not be a tail bearer. I thought somebody would say amen to that. You know what a tail bearer is? It's a gossip. Do you know that there are six things that God hates, and seven things are an abomination, and one is he who goes up and down among the brethren and sows discord. It's quieter than when I talked about sex last week. I'm surprised. <laughs> You're not a tailbearer. You're not a pot stirrer. How about that for a great theological term? You're not. If you're going to walk in, brother, folks, this is just down real. But can I tell you, churches split because people don't walk in this. And when churches split, do you think anybody that's lost wants to know about Jesus? If we can't even get along with one another, now somebody say amen if you believe. This is important stuff. This is way more important theology than some of the other things we argue about. So if I'm going to, if I'm going to, walk in brotherly love and mind my own business. I'm not going to be a tailbearer. I'm not going to be a pot stirrer, and I'm not going to be a rebel. I'm not just going to fight the system. I'm going to submit. I'm going to walk in humility. We get a sense of why Paul wrote this when we get to the second Thessalonians. Look at what he says in second Thessalonians. Paul said, we hear that there are some of us, some of you who are walking among in a disorderly manner and you're not working, but you are busybodies. Now, those who are such, we command and exhort you through our Lord Jesus Christ that you work in quietness and eat your own bread. So he obviously knew there was something stirring up there in Thessalonica. He said, mind your own business. Work. Take care of yourselves. Don Basham, in his book, On the Tip of My Tongue, says, sometimes I think the whole Christian world is made up of just two groups. Those who speak their faith and accomplish significant things for God and those who criticize and malign the first group. And boy, oh boy, how true he is. Just accept the fact that we're not perfect. 
I would tell you to accept the fact that your pastor's not perfect, but you already know that. You'd say amen, and I don't want to hear that happen. So, but we're not. Church leadership's not perfect. Your brothers and sisters in the Lord are not perfect. We need to accept that. But we need to not sit back and critique and criticize when people are doing things for God. We need to be on the side of those who are doing something for Christ, and we're speaking our faith. Brotherly love minds its own business. And I'll be done with this one. Brotherly love has great witnessing power. It's my favorite. So he says that you aspire to lead a quiet life. This is what I want, Paul said. To mind your own business. Go ahead and, yeah, thank you. To mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly among those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. So he already said, don't be a busybody. And then he, he says, work with your own hands. In other words, don't be an idle leech on society. See, let, let me explain something. They were so good at brotherly love, so good at brotherly love that some were saying, I just won't work. And then I will knock on my neighbor's house and because they have to love me, they have to take care of me. And we'll talk about this next week. This was even exasperated by the fact that they thought that Jesus was coming really soon. They thought it could be in their lifetime. And some of them thought, well, why go through the application process and get a job? Because Jesus is going to come anyway. And so I just won't work. Seriously, that's exactly what was happening. And so they're just using all these people who have been taught to walk in brotherly love. So Paul knew that if he just said walk in brotherly love, those people that weren't working, that were idle leeches would say yes. And they would knock on somebody's door. So then he addresses them. And by the way, you, he said, work work in fact in second thessalonians i read it to you if you don't work he says you don't eat so he's calling us here and all of this by the way all of this live quietly work with your own hands do that so that you can be an example to society and your culture about the greatness of jesus thomas edison said opportunity is missed by most people because it is dressed in overalls and it looks like work. Is that not the truth? I love that. If you want to screenshot that and send that to Washington, D.C., you can do that. That'd be fine. Tell them it was Thomas Edison that said it. Just don't tell them it was me, all right? Um, Both exhortations, quiet life and work, were for the purpose of witness so that you can, here's what he said, so that you can walk properly among those who are on the outside so that your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus when you invite them over for coffee you're not telling them how bad those Christians are that's not going to be a witness or so that they watch you pull the blinds every time metaphorically and try to see what everybody's doing they don't want that kind of Jesus oh how they love one another That's what the world needs to say of us. We must live our lives in a way that the lost world sees and takes notice. Well, just stand with me. I'm going to close real quickly. Two thousand eighteen, Phil Cook and Jonathan Bach wrote a book called The Way Back. I want to read that sometime. It's a great book called The Way Back. And they asked some significant questions. One of those, why did the early church succeed 
where we are failing? How did they transform the Western world in a relatively short time? And here's what they conclude. They did it because they did things that baffled the Romans. Listen, the early church didn't picket. They didn't boycott. They didn't gripe about what was going on in their culture. They just did things that astonished the Romans. They took in the abandoned babies. They helped the sick and wounded. They restored dignity to the slaves. They were willing to die for what they believed. After a while, their actions so softened the hearts of the Romans that they wanted to know more about who those Christians were and who was the God they represented. Without confrontation, protest, or debate, love did its work. I read a book, I think it was at the end of last year, I mentioned it once or twice, it's called The Slow Ferment of the Early Church. And it just talks about how godly they were, how much they loved one another, it was slow. It was a slow process, but as they loved one another, as they cared for people like they were supposed to care for people, as they stuck to truth, but they weren't harsh and judgmental, slowly, slowly it fermented into the culture and slowly it changed the culture. We somehow think that we're gonna change the culture with one great sermon or one great tweet or one great boycott or one great picket or one great election. No, we're gonna change it when the people of God are once again set about, oh, how they love one another. My favorite quote of this whole sermon is this one, the problem with Christians in America is not that Christians aren't where they should be. The problem is that they are not what they should be right where they are. We're not what we should be. Peter said, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. May the world say of us again, see how they love one another. Father, thank you for your word today. Teach us to love one another, to walk in brotherly love, to demonstrate that through forgiveness, through patience, through minding our own business, holding our convictions and values strong but not trying to force others there by seeing one another through the lens of someone who you died for through the lens of them being our brother or sister in Christ teach us to love one another I pray your heads bowed for just a moment just a quick question two quick questions. Number one, is there anyone here today who would say, Pastor Kevin, I don't know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I am not serving him, but I want to today. I want to give my life to him. I'd love for you to pray for me so that I can make Jesus the Lord of my life and I can begin today serving him. Anyone in this room, 
you would say, would you pray for me? I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Anyone in this room? Let me ask you a second question. How many with heads still bowed and say, I want to I want to grow. I want to abound more and more in brotherly love. How many would raise your hand and say, it's a desire of my heart. Let's sing together.